Let me tell you a story you've probably heard before. You may have heard it a dozen times or more, but I'm going to tell it again because it really introduces the topic that we're going to be looking at in God's Word today quite well. Okay, it's a story about a guy who's walking the beach one day, and the sun is setting, the tide's going out, but the outgoing tide has left scattered on the beach starfish, and they're, they're stranded there. And the guy looks up, and there's a little boy down the beach, and he's picking up the starfish one at a time, and he's chucking them back into the water. And so the guy decides the little boy needs a dose of reality. So he says, hey, uh, little buddy, you don't think you can rescue all the starfish, do you? I mean, there are thousands of starfish on this beach. There are thousands of beaches like this one around the world. Do you really think you can make a difference? Little boy doesn't even look up, just picks up another starfish, chucks it in the water, says, made a difference for that one. <laughs> made a difference for that one. We're, we're in the third, the final week of a series called Hands and Feet, Serving the Vulnerable. Hands and feet serving the vulnerable. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, we have a responsibility to meet the needs of vulnerable people. Especially if we're Christ followers, God's word says we're to roll up our sleeves, we're to get physically involved in meeting others' needs. Now, now there's a problem with this challenge that's apparent to every one of us. The needs of our world are so vast Every day we're surrounded by scores of needy people. Where do we begin? I mean, do, do we really think we could make a difference? I mean, just you or, or me, one person in a world of a multitude of needs? And so it's a bit discouraging. Jesus addresses this very issue in perhaps his most popular, most famous parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. So I want you to turn there with me. You'll find it in Luke chapter 10 in your Bible. Luke chapter 10, and I'd encourage you to take the outline from your program as well. This is going to be, this sermon's going to be filled with practical applications. And so you're going to want to jot down something that God's going to have you do as a result of what you hear. I've titled this sermon, What Can I Do? Now, there are two ways that you can pose that question. You, you can put the emphasis on the word I. If you ask the question that way, it sounds like this. What can I do? See how hopeless that sounds? Yeah, what can I do? Bazillion people with needs out there. I'm one person. What can I do? But there's another way you can ask that question. You could put the emphasis on the word do. What can I do? And that communicates a, a willingness on our part. We want to do something, just tell us what it is we're supposed to do. Well, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he puts the emphasis on the word do. In fact, do is one of the key words in this short story. If you've got your Bible open to Luke chapter 10, look at verse 25 where the story begins. A guy asks Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? If you got your own Bible, circle that word do. And then drop down to verse 28, last line. Jesus says to the guy who asked the question about eternal life, he says, do this and you will live. Circle that do. And then drop to the end of the parable, verse 37, where Jesus concludes this story of the Good Samaritan with these words, go and what? Do. That was okay, but we could do better. All four campuses, go and do. go and do, go and do likewise. 
This is a story about doing. Jesus wants us to do something to meet the needs of vulnerable people. And let me tell you, he's not going to let us wiggle out of this with some lame excuse about there are way too many needs and what can I do? Jesus wants to hear from us, what can I do? What can I do? There's something to do. Now, let me read the opening verses of the story to you. Let's go back to the beginning. Verse 25, follow along in your Bible or up on the screen. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that's God's law, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? By the way, Jesus was an expert teacher, and expert teachers know the best way to answer a question is with a question. And Jesus frequently did that. The way that you take passive listeners and you make them into active learners. Okay, what do you think? What are you going to do with this? So I'm going to take a page from Jesus' playbook today. We've posed the question, what can I do to meet the needs of vulnerable people? I'm going to answer that question with a question. In fact, I'm going to answer it with three questions because I'm an overachiever. All right? And that's our outline. It's going to be three questions. But before we get to the outline, back to the text, verse 27, the story continues. Jesus says, you know, what's written in God's law? The man answers will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the guy wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Okay, what can I do to meet the needs of vulnerable people? I'm going to answer that with three questions. Here's the first one. Why is love so important? Why is love so... Love has got to be the motivation for meeting the needs of vulnerable people. Why? Well, two answers in the verses I just read to you. First of all, because it's the greatest commandment. You know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. A little bit of background here. There are actually 613 commandments in the Old Testament. I didn't count them myself. I read... A Bible scholar saying that, so I'll take his word for it. 613, 248 commandments that say do something, 365 commandments that say don't do something, for a grand total of 613 commandments, do's and don'ts. So when an expert in God's law, a Bible scholar, asks Jesus, verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what's written in God's law? In other words, what what do the the Old Testament Ten Commandments tell you to do? This guy had a lot of commandments to choose from, 613. He chose well. He summarized by saying, well, you know, the commandments are uh, love God and love, love your neighbor. He distilled it all into really this one commandment because it's flip sides of the, the same commandment, love, love. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Love is the greatest commandment. And what will, listen, what will love motivate us to do when we run into people with needs? What do you think? If you love the person who's got the needs, what are you going to do? You're going to meet those needs, whatever way possible. 
See, love is not only the greatest commandment, it's the motivation to meet needs. In fact, no other motivation will do over the long haul. No other motivation will do consistently. Guilt won't do it. I mean, I could guilt you. You've got so much, other people have so little. Don't you feel like a dirtbag? Go do something, okay? <laughs> guilt doesn't, you know, guilt doesn't do it over the long haul. We could turn a deaf ear to guilt. Duty won't do it. I could say, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to, and you say, I've got plenty of oughts in my life, please. Gratitude won't do it over the long haul. You say, if I serve people, they'll say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. No, they won't. Most often, they won't. If you're doing it for gratitude, forget it. Recognition won't do it. You know, whenever Sue and I pull out our little red wagon, which we do several times a year to collect canned goods from our neighbors, all of our neighbors say, you're such wonderful people to do this. Let me tell you, that doesn't get the, the little red wagon out and running down the street. Reward from God won't do it. If you're thinking, if I do this for a needy person, then God will do this for me. Let me tell you, many of God's rewards don't even come in this life. They come in the life to come. The best motivation to meet the needs of vulnerable people happens to be the greatest commandment, love. Do it because you love people. By, by the way, this love, you can't drum up this love by yourself. You're not going to walk out into your world and, and just love people. You've got to pray on a daily basis, God, give me your love for people in need. You get it? Good. Why is love so important? It's, it's the greatest commandment. It's the best motivation to meeting others' needs. But there's a second answer in the verses we've read as to why love is so important, and that's because it's the evidence of eternal life. The Bible scholar who approaches Jesus asks, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you've read the rest of the Bible and you know what it says about how to get eternal life, what are you expecting Jesus to answer here? guy says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus should say, believe in me. Surrender your life to me. You a bit surprised by Jesus' answer? He doesn't say that. He says, show acts of love for needy people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this. You say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible teach that eternal life, eternal salvation is not something you can get by doing? You can't earn it with good deeds. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it's by grace you're saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, Paul adds, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So Jesus gave this guy the wrong answer. I mean, G Jesus told this guy to earn his salvation by serving vulnerable people in love. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about the earning of salvation here. He was talking about the evidence of salvation. Big difference. He wasn't talking about earning. He was talking about evidence. See, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you surrender your life to Jesus, if you get eternal life by faith, God comes to live on the inside. And when God comes to live on the inside, he begins to give you his love for needy people. You say, well, what if that evidence is lacking in my life? Listen to what the Apostle John writes in that regard. 1 John 3, verse 17. 
He says, if anyone has material possessions and he sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them and doesn't meet the need, how can the love of God be in that person? You hear what John's saying? If you don't serve needy people in love, how can you say you got God on the inside? James chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 say much the same thing. James says, if we claim to have faith but we ignore the physical needs of others around us, our so-called faith is dead. James says that kind of faith can't save anybody. Okay, back to Mr. Smarty Pants Bible Scholar. He thought he had really impressed Jesus with his whiz-bang answer about the Bible's most important commandment. I mean, he had taken 613 commandments, boiled them down to love God, love your neighbor. What a brilliant answer if he must say so himself. But Jesus wasn't looking for a right answer. Jesus was looking for right action. See, the Bible scholar knew that love is, is the greatest commandment, but did he actually do love? Jesus told him at the end of verse 28, he said, do this, do love. Not know this, do this, and you will live. Well, the guy didn't like getting schooled by Jesus in front of a crowd. He was a bit embarrassed. And so to save face, look at verse 29, he he tried to justify himself. You know, he quickly fired Jesus a follow-up question, a cynical question. Who's my neighbor? Yeah, like, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? He was obviously expecting a response that would limit the scope of his responsibility. I mean, he knew that he was supposed to love his neighbor, but he lived by a very narrow definition of neighbor. A neighbor in this guy's mind was, you know, a member of your extended family, close friend, you know, definitely a fellow Jew. He was already loving those kinds of people. But Jesus answered the question, who is my neighbor, much more broadly. Jesus defined neighbor with a story. And I'm going to introduce that story to you with my second question. Okay, What can I do to meet the needs of vulnerable people? I answered that with the first question, well, why is love so important? Second question is, what do you see? Okay, what do you see? Let's pick up Jesus' parable at verse 30. There are three people in this story who saw something, another critical word in the story. Circle the word saw each time it pops up. What did these people see? Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw... There's one of our words. When he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. Three people who see things. The priest, verse 31. The Levite, verse 32. The Samaritan, verse 33. They all saw a guy who'd been robbed, beaten up, and was left half dead on the side of the road. But the priest and the Levite saw the victim quite differently than the Samaritan did. So I want to use four expressions here to describe what the priest and the Levite saw. And then I'm going to contrast each of those expressions 
with what the Samaritans saw. And along the way, I'm going to throw in some contemporary illustrations of people at Christ Community Church who are seeing needy people these days like the Samaritan did. They're going to be our role models. Okay, so, so what did the priest and the Levite see? First thing, they saw a stranger. You know, they saw this crumpled mass of humanity, this body on the, the side of the road. They didn't recognize him. Didn't look like anybody they knew. Wasn't one of their neighbors, nobody they worked with, wasn't a golfing buddy. Now, the truth of the matter is they couldn't have known that because they didn't get close enough to recognize the man by the side of the road. The story says they crossed to the other side of the road. They kept their distance. But the Samaritan, look at verse 33, as he traveled, came where the man was. He got close. He came where the man was. And when he saw him, took pity on him. Now, here's what's so interesting about the Samaritan getting close. Most likely, the guy by the side of the road, because of the region of the world in which this happened, most likely the guy was a Jew. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews looked down their noses at Samaritans. Years earlier, Jews had intermarried with non-Jews. They had compromised their race, compromised their faith, and the offspring were Samaritans. That's how the Jews saw things. They were racial and religious bigots. And the Samaritans returned the favor. They hated Jews in, in return. So this guy whom the Samaritan got close to was not only a stranger, he was an enemy. Do, do we see people in need or do we see strangers? What do I mean by strangers? Well, you know, we don't know them. We don't know them. And what's worse, they're, they're different from us. Maybe their differentness is due to the fact that they're from another race. Or they're from another country. They're, they're an immigrant. Or they're homeless and somewhat smelly. Or they're elderly and a bit dement, de, demented. There, there's something about them that's out of our comfort zone. People in need. And so our natural tendency is to keep them at arm's length time for one of my role model stories. Rich is a regular attender of Christ Community Church, and for years, Rich was squeamish uh, around people with disabilities. And so one, one second Saturday, he did a very brave thing. Now, second Saturdays at Christ Community Church is when we invite you to volunteer for a morning, just a morning of service to people in need in our community. So Rich signed up to go to Markland Home. Now, if you know about Markland Home, it's a home for people with severe disabilities. So he gets on the bus and he goes to Markland Home. How do you interact with people with severe disabilities? Most of them are in wheelchairs. Many of them can't communicate. Rich had no idea. He was a fish out of water. His entire morning was an experience of awkwardness. In fact, he got on the bus to go home and he's thinking, never going to do that again. But the next second Saturday rolled around. What do you think he signed up for? He said, oh, go back to Markland home. And he went back the second Saturday after that. And the second Saturday after that. 
And he's been going ever since. In fact, Rich has become our point person for our partnership with Marklin Home. One of the really cool things he's done, he started a chapel service there once a month for the residents of Markland Home. You may know many of these residents come to our St. Charles campus for our 9 o'clock service. And if you'll occasionally hear a scream out, you got to know that's music to my ears. I'm glad they're here, but I'm glad we're doing a chapel service for them where they live as well. That's so cool. So what's the takeaway? Any person you encounter, whether it be in a homeless shelter, any needy person, homeless shelter, in a jail, in a nursing home, in a crisis pregnancy center, in in a housing project, wherever, is going to feel like a stranger initially. But love will push you past that barrier. Second, what did the priest and the Levites saw? They saw a danger. Now, this guy, beaten up by the side of the road, he'd obviously been beaten up by bad guys, right? And who's to say that the bad guys aren't still in the neighborhood, that they're not hanging out there? Now, I have personally traveled this stretch of road that Jesus describes in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a 17-mile stretch, begins in Jerusalem at 2,600 feet above sea level. It goes to Jericho, 800 feet below sea level. It is a steep descent, treacherous. It's very rocky. There are caves along the way where in Jesus' day, bad guys, bandits used to hang out, just waiting for some unsuspecting person to wander by, and then they pounce. But I took that road in an air-conditioned tour bus with 50 other people. (laughs) See, I wasn't going to take it on foot, not by myself. You know, I fully understand why the priest and the Levite kept moving. There was danger there. But the Samaritan was willing to take the risk. If you're a business person and you're looking to make a big investment, or you're going to start something new. Don't you always do a risk versus reward analysis? Of course you do. You know, you you look at this venture and you say, okay, what is the risk involved and what is the potential reward? I mean, if the risk is sky high and the reward is insignificant, you're going to do it? No. You know, you you want the risk to be low and the potential reward to be great. The risk for the good Samaritan was such that he would have been wise to get the heck out of there. But the reward was to save a guy's life. Friends, if you decide to help people in need, there is no guarantee that you'll always be safe. We've got this thing about safe in suburbia. If you decide to help people in need, there is no guarantee that you'll be safe. There's often some bit of danger involved. Whether you're welcoming a foster child into your home, or you're leading a Bible study in a jail, or you're traveling on a go team to a place like Haiti, or or, or you're, you're shelving canned goods at the local food pantry, you might get hurt. You might drop a can of beans on your toe and break it. You know, there, there's a risk involved. Love pushes beyond the risk. Third, what did the priest and the Levites see? They saw an interruption. 
Now, what, what I've told you about the danger of the road between Jerusalem and, and Jericho should cause you to understand that nobody took this road on a lark. Okay, the only reason you would be on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is if you had someplace to go. You absolutely had to get from, from point A to point B. There was a very important agenda you had to attend to. Now, in the case of the priest, we can guess what that, that might have been. In Jesus' day, there were 24 orders or 24 groups of priests who served in the temple. Your group would serve for one week, and then you'd be off for 23 weeks. Where did you go during your 23 off weeks? Well, most priests lived in Jericho. And so, so we, we can surmise that this priest had just finished one solid week, 24-7 of service in the temple, and he's making a beeline for home. And nothing is going to interrupt him getting home to his warm bed and his wife's home-cooked meals and his kids. And, and he's not going to interrupt his mad dash for anybody or anything. The Samaritan no doubt had a very important agenda as well. Bible scholars surmise he was perhaps a merchant, a traveling merchant. And so he had a pressing appointment, no doubt, in Jericho. That's the only reason he'd be on this road. He had a deal to close, or he had goods to deliver, or he had a cranky customer to pacify. But he allowed himself to be interrupted. Anne allowed herself to be interrupted. Here's another role model story. Anne... One of our members of Christ Community Church, she had picked up groceries one day in town. She's headed for home. Now, you know what, what that's like when you've picked up your groceries. You've got frozen food. It's got to get in the fridge, right? You make a beeline for home. Uh, only Anne's driving down the road, and she sees a family on the side of the road, and they're holding a sign. they got a need. Now, she's on Randall Road within eyeshot of our St. Charles campus. And her initial response is to drive by the family. And that's what she does, but God won't let her off the hook. She feels in her heart, I should have stopped. And they sure looked hungry. So she makes a quick turn, and she pulls into McDonald's, and she stocks up on a lot of food, and she brings it back to this family, and she serves them up, and she listens to their story, their plight, and she says, can I pray for you? And she circles them up, and she prays for them. As she's praying, another car stops. A guy get out, gets out and offers help, offers money. Ann says, well, we're praying. Why don't you join us? The guy says, I don't pray. Ann said, that's okay. I do. And as they're, they're praying, another car stops, and a guy gets out and says, hey, can I offer some assistance? Can I give you some money for meals or whatever? And so the money continues to roll in. And when it's all over, Anne settles this family at Lazarus' house, a homeless shelter in St. Charles, and then she goes home and puts away her groceries. Okay, that's an interruption. Are, are we so busy are we so focused on our daily agenda that we never allow interruptions? Or does love occasionally compel us to stop? If they ever start a 12-step program for overly busy people, I'm in. If I could find the time. <laughs> I'm not saying you always stop. You'd never get anywhere. But do you ever stop? Do you, you ever allow yourself to be interrupted? 
Fourth, what did the priest and the Levite see? They saw a mess. I mean, the beaten up guy was a bloody mess, and that posed a significant problem for the priest and the Levite. You see, it wasn't just a case of not wanting to get dirty. It was a case of not wanting to get defiled. In the Old Testament, there was a law that stipulated you were not to get close to a dead body, to a corpse. If you did, you would become defiled. You, you, you would be defiled for a period of seven days after which you'd have to go through this long process of purification that cost you time and money. In fact, some rabbis in Jesus' day, they took that law, they extrapolated on it. They, they said, you know, encountering a corpse me means not just touching it, it means breathing the air that the dead person had breathed. And so, so they cautioned you to stay at least six feet away. Kind of like when you were a kid and you'd pass a graveyard and you'd hold your breath, right? That's the priest and the Levite here. Don't breathe in the dead person's air. You'll be contaminated. It was a mess. But the Samaritan was willing to get messy. I mean, the, the, the beat-up guy was going to require some hands-on help. The Samaritan didn't just pull out his cell phone and call for roadside assistance. Hey, could you swing by, send somebody out to pick this guy up? He was the roadside assistance. He got messy. Just like a friend of mine at Christ Community Church, I'll call Joe, because he'd cringe if I used his real name. But some years back, Joe and his wife decided to take on the sponsorship of a refugee family. From Burundi. I don't even know where Burundi is on a map, do you? Of course you don't. So they take on this family through World Relief. World Relief is an international organization that Christ Community Church partners with. They specialize in resettling immigrants, refugee families in our country. And Joe and his wife pour themselves in. Do you know how much work goes into resettling a refugee family? You've got to help them learn English, help them get jobs, drive them here and there, help them find a doctor. It, on and on it goes. It's a mess. But Joe and his wife saw people in need, and they loved on them. What do you see? You see a stranger? You see a danger? You see an interruption to your day's agenda? You see a mess? Don't want to get in, involved in that. Or do you see people in need with the love of God? Now here's a third question. You know, who are these people in need? Who is my neighbor? That's the third question. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to make, make the point that the, the neighbor is anybody we come across who has a significant need. Anybody. So what kinds of needs are we talking about? See, if we could get our heads wrapped around this, if we could get a picture in our minds of what a needy person looks like, maybe we'll do a better job of identifying those people and serving their needs. So let me read the rest of the story of the Good Samaritan to you because there are some parallels between the needs of this beat-up guy on the side of the road and the needs of vulnerable people that you and I are going to run into every day. So what kind of needs did this guy have? Pick up the story again, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do, go and do likewise. Okay, we're asking the question, who's my neighbor? What does a person in need look like? I'm going to give you several characteristics from this story, but this is not a comprehensive list. This is just to get us started, get us thinking. Who's my neighbor? Who's a person in need? Well, it's someone in need first of TLC. Somebody in need of tender, loving care. Look again at verse 34. It says that the Samaritan went to the beat-up guy, poured oil and wine on his wounds, then bandaged him up. Why oil and wine? Well, in Jesus' day, wine uh, was used to cleanse a wound, actually disinfected the wound. They didn't know that then, but it did. Oil was used to bring soothing. But the more important question is this, where did the Samaritan get his bandages? Like, are we to assume that the dude carried around a first aid kit in the glove compartment of his donkey? <laughs> I don't think so. Where, where do you think his bandages came from? Call it out. Yeah, probably his own clothes ripped up to meet the, the man's needs, to cover his wounds. Keep your eyes open for wounded people who need TLC. And by the way, wounds are not just physical injuries. Many people who need our TLC, they are emotionally, they are relationally wounded. If you volunteer at our care night, our Tuesday night care night, and that's one of the things I hope you'll choose to do. If you'll volunteer for a Tuesday night care night, you, you will encounter wounded people. You'll, you'll encounter people who are battling depression. You will encounter people who, who are recovering from a painful divorce. You will re, you'll encounter people who are struggling with an addiction, people who are grieving the loss of a loved one. You'll meet wounded people. Yeah, I, I would recommend care night or a second Saturday. If, if you want to apply this scripture and you can't think of a personal way to do it, those ministries will get you started. But you could do this on your own as well. Just be creative. Let me tell you a story about a family that got really creative. They, they heard about a woman in the church who just had a new baby, and the baby had some physical deformities, and she was struggling to keep her, her head above water, caring for this new child as well as a toddler. And people in the church, they were bringing meals by. They were meeting the woman's physical needs. But this family decided to meet an emotional need. And so they brought by chocolate chip cookies. Now here's the catch. They didn't bring by already baked chocolate chip cookies. They brought by the raw cookie dough and cooked it there. Why would they do that? Yeah. There is nothing better than the delicious, soothing smell. Can you smell it? <laughs> Chocolate chip cookies in the oven. And oh, they taste so good when they just come out. And while they were baking the cookies, they cared for the toddler, gave the mom some relief. See, that's a couple that gets TLC. What else? 
What else can we learn? By the way, you probably won't stop thinking about chocolate chip cookies, so get over it. What else describes a person in need? Second thing I pick up from the story, it's somebody in need of transportation. Look again at verse 34. The Samaritan puts the beat-up guy on his donkey, which means that he himself had to what? Walk. And let me just remind you, this is a 17-mile stretch of sun-scorched, incredibly steep, horribly rocky road, and the dude's walking so somebody else can be on his, I started to say camel, on his donkey. So how can we provide transportation for people in need? Again, I just want to get the creative juices flowing. Let, Let me give you some ideas. What about carrying jumper cables in your car? How many times have you seen somebody in a parking lot, hood up, battery dead, and and you think, oh, I'd love to help them, but I don't have any jumper cables? It's a real simple thing you can do. Or how about this? Your your car, your current car is getting old. It's got lots of miles on it, lots and lots of miles. You'll get basically nothing for it by way of trading. Why not give it away to somebody who needs it? Why not give the sucker away? Now, not if it's a dump, okay? But if it's running smoothly, why not give it away? Or how about this one? Some of you are mechanically inclined. You can fix cars. Why don't you do it for free for somebody who needs it? For a widow, for a single mom, for your pastor. (laughs) Just a thought. Or how about, how about this? Have you ever thought about just driving someone, someone who can't drive where, where they need to go? I've got a father-in-law who lives in Ohio. My mother-in-law's in a nursing home. My father-in-law lives at home. His wife's in a nursing home with Alzheimer's. He can't drive. The only way he can see his wife is if somebody drives him. Or maybe you know someone who lost their license to a DUI, and the only way they can get to work is if somebody drives them. People in need of transportation. Here's another characteristic of your neighbor. It's someone in need of a home. Go back to Luke 10, verse 34, one more time. The Samaritan puts the guy on his donkey and takes him to an inn, pays for his stay. Not only that, according to this verse, he didn't just drop the guy off and take off. He stuck around the first night so he could take care of his needs. So so many of our community impact ministries at Christ Community Church have to do with housing. What is more important than a person having a roof over their head? I mean, do you love your house? I I love my house. Not a big house, not a flashy house, but it's my home. What about people who don't have a home? What about people in a house that's so broken down, it's almost unbearable, but they can't afford to fix it? What can you do to provide a home for people? Let me give you some suggestions. Okay, there's safe families. You've heard about that from us. This is where you you offer a roof over the head of a child who needs it temporarily. This is not foster care. Not a lot is being demanded of you, but for a short time, the child has to be out of its own home. Maybe its, its mom, its dad is incarcerated for a period of a month or something, and you could be a safe family that takes care of that child. 
Or maybe you can serve in one of our community's homeless shelters, one of the ones we partner with at Christ Community Church. Show up for a second Saturday. We'll send you for a couple hours of work at a homeless shelter. You'll get hooked. You may, you may want to go back every week and donate a few hours of time. Or, or how about this one? We've got a ministry that I didn't even know we had until this last week. We've got a ministry that does nothing but pick up used furniture from people who want to donate it and delivers that furniture to people who need it. Isn't that cool? See, our, our, our team was delivering a piece of furniture recently, a sofa, to, to a lady, and her eyes filled up with tears, and they learned the reason she was so delighted in this sofa, she'd been sleeping on the floor. She didn't have a bed either. And so now this sofa was going to double as a sofa and a bed. Or what about our handyman ministry that fixes up houses for people? And I think, think we call it to love your neighbor. That's our, you know, our handyman ministry. Now, this assumes that you're handy. So this is why I've never volunteered for that ministry. But I got a letter. I got a letter from a guy in Boston recently. It wasn't addressed to me, addressed to our church, but it eventually found itself uh, to my desk this guy in Boston is a financial manager, and he was writing to thank Christ Community Church for sending a team to work on his sister's house. She's a mom of three girls, single mom, can't do the repairs, can't afford the repairs on her own. And so he was writing to thank us, and with his thank you, he enclosed a check to Christ Community Church. And one of the lines in his note, his thank you note, read like this. He said, I invest in companies for a living. But the investment I've just made in Christ Community Church will outperform anything I've been able to find on the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, it will. Fourth characteristic of a neighbor is just someone in need of financial help. That's fairly easy. Look again at verse 35. The next day the Samaritan took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Bible scholars say that two denarii probably represented the wages of two full days of work. And th those wages would cover, they estimate, anywhere between several weeks and a couple of months of lodging in an inn in Jesus' day. Wow. Are you a giver? Do you give generously? or just token amounts? Do you take a portion of every paycheck you get, every paycheck, and give a portion back to the Lord's work? It's a really easy thing to do, and you won't hurt for it. You know, this time of year, the holiday season, in addition to our regular offerings that support the ministry of our church, ministries that mainly care for us, right, and our families, so the holiday season comes, and we take a special offering for needs outside our four walls. This is over and above your regular giving. This year, our year-end gift, we're, we're seeking to collect a half million dollars. What are we going to use it for? Well, first, we're going to pay for the 10,000 shoeboxes we packed this weekend that are going to go to needy children all around the world, because somebody's got to pay for them. And then we're going to help and a ministry down in Haiti construct an orphanage, a ministry we've just begun working with, and then some of the money's going to go to our camp commotion. We tried it for the first time this past summer at our St. Charles campus, 
Camp Commotion is day camp. A lot of the kids that came, no church background, certainly don't come to Christ's community church. They got a mom and a dad working all day, nowhere to go during the day. We took care of them and told them about Jesus at Camp Commotion. So that's where your year-end gift will go. I hope you'll pray You'll talk about this as a family. You'll make a generous gift between now and the end of the year. There are so many needs that could be met with financial generosity. Now, I have overwhelmed you today, haven't I? I've told you so many stories. Where do I begin? But let me go back to the story that I began with, the story about the little boy with the starfish, because that's where you begin. You, you, You look at the next starfish and you toss it into the ocean. So the next starfish for you might be showing up to volunteer on a Tuesday night at Care Night. It might be coming to the next second Saturday. And by the way, that's a month away now because we just celebrated it this weekend. And so put it on your calendar or you'll forget when it rolls around in December. It may mean going into the lobby of any of our four auditoriums before you leave today and signing up for something. It may be just spontaneously the next need you see, you're going to be the Good Samaritan that does something about meeting that need. Now, I got a gift for you that's going to help you remember this. When you leave each of our campuses today, there's going to be a stack of magnets on a table outside the door. It's got a starfish on it and a Bible verse. And I want you to put it on your refrigerator to remind you that Jesus wants you to do something. Pick up the next starfish. Chuck it back in the water. Now, I want to close this series in a special way. I want to close it with a blessing. A month ago, we did a workplace series. And I closed that series with a blessing. I said, I'm going to send you all out into your workplaces as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And I I hope that's changed the way you look at work, wherever you work. But today, I'm going to send you out into a world with desperate needs to share the love of Christ. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand at all four of our campuses. We're going to do this together. So stand together, and here's the way you get the blessing. I'm going to mention three body parts. And when I mention those three body parts, I want you to touch them with your hands on your body, not somebody else's. Okay? When I talk about a new heart, I want you to put your hand over your heart. Practice that right now. Hand over the heart. When I talk about eyes, I want you to just do this. Hands on your eyes, all four campuses. And then when I say hands and feet, hold up your hands and stomp your feet. I want to hear noise, okay? Stomp. So let's bow together to get God's blessing. And then when I'm done with the blessing, please stay standing for 60 seconds while I close in St. Charles and our campus pastors close at the other campuses. May the Lord bless you with a new heart. May God give you a heart filled with his love for people in need. May the Lord God bless you with new eyes. May the Lord God give you eyes so you can see the needs of people around you. May he help you not to see strangers or dangers or interruptions or messes. May he help you to see opportunities, opportunities to serve, to show his love in a tangible way. May God give you eyes to see people who need Jesus. May God bless you with new hands and feet. Yeah, love the sound. May God motivate you to do something, to pick up the next starfish one at a time,
May he move your hands and feet to a Tuesday night care night or a second Saturday or whatever spontaneous opportunity you have to serve those in need. May the Lord bless you. May you become a need meter in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.